0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. This is really a treat for me to be here. I um, live probably a half mile east on the hill, but it takes me three miles to drive here. And uh, being a resident of Southbridge since 1958, and knowing of this church and its history, and even as the church that I attend and this church uh, may be collaborating and bringing the gospel to this area, it's it's a blessing that. I might be here this morning. In 1 Peter 3.15, we're told, always be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that you have. And let me land this on you as I start. Do you have a message? Do you have a defense that you're prepared to give if someone asks you for the reason that the hope that you have? This morning, this is an enormous privilege for me. I've I've had the opportunity to preach as a lay preacher through the years, but I always consider it as as an enormous privilege to be able to ascend the pulpit and share God's word. And this morning, this is the reason for the hope that I have. It's the gospel. I wanna share the gospel with you. And I challenge you that you would be prepared if you have an opportunity like I got a call not long ago, oh, An hour and <laughs> minutes. to be able to share the hope that I have that you have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we're able to meet in this place. This is your time. This is your word. It's your eternity. Draw us into it for your glory now. Be glorified in everything that I might say, Lord. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I'd like to focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel so-called. We we in Christian circles use this term often and sometimes so commonly that we overlook its meaning and its nuances, and this is unfortunate. The gospel is central to our faith. It's the core of our theology. It's, It's the lifeblood of our ministry. It's the lifeblood of your ministry. It's the ultimate hope that we have in our lives here on earth. And I believe that we need to circle back every once in a while to review the gospel, to recalibrate our internal and eternal compasses, that it's good for our Christian health individually, and it's good for the Christian health of our churches collectively. So I'm here today to talk about the gospel. And it's my fervent hope and prayer that individually, it may land on some of you who need to hear it. And that as a church, it may encourage you to take this wonderful gospel message, the gift that God has given to us through Christ, and take it to this community, like every other community in this nation and in this world, that needs to hear it. Within the Christian faith, the, cost, the, the concept of gospel is broadly defined. In the most general sense, it means good news or good tidings. It appears throughout the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, over a hundred times. And it translates into our English versions of the Bible from the word eugelion. Stemming from this noun comes the verb eugelizo, which is to evangelize. And further from this noun and verb which denotes the evangelist, the one who declares the good news. Today in your presence, I intend to be such an evangelist, one who declares this good news, news, this gospel. Be it known, however, that this concept of the gospel is not so simple, and we, we need to drill down and do a little better work to define what we mean by the gospel. You see, the gospel is nuanced in its meaning, depending on where it comes in Scripture, in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, or in the New Testament after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In the Old Testament, gospel is almost always related to God and the actions he has taken for us. These actions are particularly saving in nature, saving help or saving works or saving deeds. They generally concern his people, Israel, in physical deliverance from oppressors or in deliverance from sin. In both situations, the appropriate human response is praise and adoration and exaltation of the great God. In a foreshadowing way, this good news deliverance in the Old Testament portends a greater deliverance to be expected in the future, that the Messiah is coming. When we move into the New Testament, our focus naturally shifts to Jesus Christ and before his death, burial, and resurrection, he is the proclaimer of the good news of this coming kingdom of God. The world into which Jesus is born is not right. Sin and suffering exist and prevail. God's will has not yet been done on heaven and on earth. But Jesus proclaims the good news of that coming kingdom of God who continues to be sovereign and who coincidentally has appointed Jesus Christ to be its solution. So we see in the New Testament a subtle transition whereby Jesus Christ the proclaimer of the good news becomes the proclaimed. Isn't that neat? The proclaimer becomes the proclaimed. And this happens at the cross and it's confirmed by the resurrection. After the resurrection there's fulfillment. There's completion. There's a realization of the solution to man's problem, his eternal separation from his creator God. This solution is Christ. It is of Christ. The good news is thereafter referred to as the gospel of Jesus Christ. But amazingly, though there is only one gospel of Jesus Christ, now there are two mission fields, the Jews and the Gentiles. Before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he predominantly walked among the Jewish people, and he proclaimed good news. But after his resurrection, the width and breadth of this gospel good news message was shared to all who would believe and follow him. Peter stayed in Jerusalem, and he proclaimed the gospel message to the people there. Paul and the others went out to the uttermost parts of the then-known world And they proclaim this good news message. That wonderful message has been passed on to us, person to person, year after year. Simply, this gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news of Jesus Christ, now applies to us too. And it is of this gospel that I have come here this morning to speak. So my starting off point this morning is the very familiar passage in Romans 1, 16, where Paul proclaimed the strength of this message. In 57 AD, obviously after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Paul wrote to the believers with a very bold and assured proclamation. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. Today I stand before you, and I too am not ashamed of that gospel not ashamed of that gospel. It is the power of God for us. I recognize it's power of God to change our lives as it did to me over 40 years ago in September of 1977 when I began trusting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. It is the power of God to reconcile sinners like us to himself. It is the power of God to liberate us from the bondage of our sin. In short, it is the power of God to save us. It is the power to effect the salvation it announces and to impart the life it pronounces. This gospel of Jesus Christ is undeniably good news. It has drawn us out of death into life, and at that, life eternal. What better hope could there be? It has led us out of darkness into life. It has changed us from being dead being alive, and from being God's enemies to being his children, we are adopted into his forever family because of this good news gospel. It is good news because all of this is given to us by grace. It is freely given, and we deserve none of it. Which to me, through all of these years, as I have walked with the Lord, I still cannot fathom the depth of God's love to save me a sinner. We deserve none of it. We must be constantly reminded of how great is this good news. And I can think of no better way than to frame this than put it in its proper context. To highlight the good by showing how bad and dire is our situation before God without Christ. That is to say, if there is good news to proclaim, then there is bad news to avoid. So what is that bad news? Paul wrote to the Romans and stated a clear, fundamental, universal truth. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. We have all sinned and we all continue to sin. We are ancestors of Adam and Eve who began this vile practice and we have inherited this proclivity. We are born in sin and it is part of our nature. David proclaimed in Psalm 53, There is none who does good, no, not one. Sin separates us from God, our creator. It makes us God's enemy. Does
1: that
0: shock you? Does that shock you to think that before you came to the cross, you were not just neutral, you were God's enemy? Sin makes us God's enemy. It makes us the object of His wrath. It has a price, and that price is death. Apart from believing in Christ, our eternal prospects are horrific. In John chapter 3 we are told, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And further, in John 336, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's not that God's wrath will come, it is already here. The disobedient one, the sinner, the unbeliever, is already in the crosshairs of God's wrath. Unless something is done to deal with this problem, this wrath will remain, and it will remain forever. Death, condemnation, and wrath. Our sin is not free of consequences. The result of our sin is horrific. And this is horrible news. It's more than just bad news. But we don't seem to talk much about this In our culture, certainly not the way preachers have pressed this point in times past, and certainly not as passionately and persuasively. I would tell you that I love history, and I've recently engaged in some pleasure reading for history geeks of sermons of evangelists of our past, like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and Charles Spurgeon and B.L. Moody and Billy Sunday and others. If nothing else can be said of them, they didn't mince words. They were very willing and able to tell their listeners about their dire condition before God. And in many instances, they were very artful and persuasive. Just listen to the words of Jonathan Edwards in his famous 1741 sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He spoke, Yea, There is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath, that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. Or another portion of that Jonathan Edwards sermon he, he preached. Your wickedness makes you as if it were heavy as lead and tend downward with great weight and pressures towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge Into the bottomless gulf, and your healthy constitution, and your own care and prudence, and best contrivance, and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Or the famously extracted quote from this sermon The bow of God's wrath is bent. And the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart. And strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God. And that of an angry God. Without any promise or obligation at all. That keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Or consider the famous evangelist George Whitfield, Who came through these parts who traveled from England to the colonies 13, uh, seven times between 1740 and 1770, that period we call the First Great Awakening, and who was heard by the majority of the colonists at that time, and who arguably is responsible for the spirit and drive of the colonists who fought through the Revolutionary War to become our nation of the United States with a gener- generally Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian ethic and Judeo-Christian mindset. He was known as the great orator who had a booming voice and could attract crowds, sometimes upwards to 20,000 people. He didn't mince words either, and in one recorded sermon he said, Think, I beseech you, by the mercies of God in Christ Jesus. Think with yourselves how racking, how unsupportable the never-dying worm of a self-condemning conscience will hereafter be to you, Think how impossible it will be for you to dwell with everlasting burnings. Consider, I beseech you, consider how you will rave and curse that fatal stupidity which made you believe anything less than true faith in Jesus can keep you from those torments, the eternity of which I have been endeavoring to prove. In the late 1880s and early 1890s, Retired professional baseball player Billy Sunday reached millions with the gospel message delivered in a dramatic and oftentimes folksy way. I really enjoyed reading his sermons. In a plain talking way, he described the horrible place that sinners were in outside of Christ. And in one sermon, he said this The devil has got some of you so close to hell that you can smell the fumes. He's no loafer. He's been working for 6,000 years, and he's never laid up with appendicitis nor tonsillitis nor the grip. Or in another sermon, he said, hell must be an awful place. The fact that God went to the trouble he did to send Jesus Christ to this earth and to work out his great plan of redemption proves that it must be an awful place. I think this should give us a new vision. Or finally, the great preacher, Reverend Charles H. Spurgeon. England's preeminent preacher of the late 1800s. In 1862, he preached a sermon entitled The Sinner's End, and in it he forcefully stated, A spider's web is a strong cable when compared with the thread on which moral life depends. We have told you a thousand times till the saying has become so trite that you smile when we repeat it. Life is frail, and yet you live, O men, as though your bones were brass and your flesh were adamant, and your lives like the years of the eternal God, as breaks the dream of the sleeper, as flies the cloud before the wind, as melts the foam from the breaker, as dies the meteor from the sky, so suddenly shall the sinner's joys pass forever from him. And who shall measure the greatness of his amazement? Remember, O sons of men, how terrible is the end of the ungodly. Friends, I believe pastors in churches these days have been lax in emphasizing how dire a sinner's condition is apart from Christ. And that bad news, ironically, is about the bad news. We don't often hear hell discussed in our churches. And even at that, really, do we hear hell described so ominously and imminently, as did these preachers in the past. And outside of the church, Hell is a joke, and people flippantly tell others to go there. Friends, hell is not a joke. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. This death involves an eternal separation from God in an actual place of torment and misery. Have you ever had your fingers slammed in a door? The pain is excruciating, but it eventually subsides. And as you sit here, you no longer have the pain, just the bad memory of it. But the torment of hell is eternal. Let me give you the definition of eternal that I was once told. A bird flies to the top of Mount Everest, 29,029 feet. It's a big rock. He goes and he tries to sharpen his beak, one way and another way a billion years he comes back and he sharpens one way and another way. And a billion years he comes back and he sharpens it one way and another way. And a billion and a billion and a billion and a billion. All of this time trying to wear down the the mountain. When the mountain is eventually worn down, it is less than one second the in eternity. In the finiteness of our lives, we just can't fathom eternity and infinity. Being in hell for one second would be horrible, but being there for eternity is indescribable. But that is what we deserve because that is what we have earned by our rebellion and sin. This is horrible, horrible, horrible news. It is worse than bad news. But don't despair. We have the gospel. We have the good news. Don't we? From the prospect of this horrible eternity, we need help. We need a savior. And God's solution is Jesus Christ. He is our savior. Though we are rebellious and unlovely, amazingly, God still loves us. Paul wrote to us, in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in the famous verse John 316, 3, 16, we're further reminded of God's loving solution for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Amen. Christ is our Savior, the one who saves us. He is our redeemer. The one who buys us back out of the bondage of sin, he is our ransomer. The one who pays the price that we are incapable of paying, he is our reconciler. The one who brings us back to our, we rebelled against. He is our substitute. The one who shed his blood in our place. God, being just and merciful and gracious, all at the same time did the miraculous at the cross. He saved us through Christ and kept his integrity. By still staying just and merciful and gracious. How could that be? If just is getting what we deserve. And if mercy is not getting what we deserve. And if grace is getting more than we deserve. Then how did God pull that off? Ever thought of that? How can we reconcile those attributes of our great God? Well, let me give you a 21st century picture of this, taken from the world in which I've worked for over 40 years. With your mind's eye, travel with me to an imaginary courtroom. The judge has just sentenced the defendant to life in prison. A just penalty for what he did. Then, in an amazing move, the judge voluntarily takes off his robe and comes down off the bench and stands next to the defendant. Without fanfare, he gives the defendant his wallet, and his car keys, and he puts out his hands to the court officer to be handcuffed and to be taken away to serve the defendant's sentence. The court officer obeys and takes the cuff off of the defendant and places them on the judge and then walks the judge out of the courtroom to go to jail to serve the life sentence. Everyone in the courtroom is aghast, and rightly so. Now the defendant has a choice. Does he run after the judge and starts yelling, Judge, let me go with you and help you serve that sentence. Or does he act in faith, believing that his penalty has been paid in full, that he has received mercy, and walk out of the courtroom as a free man, released from the penalty of sin. And better yet, with the wallet and the car keys, being blessed with grace and having more than he deserves. This is the unlikely yet wonderful interplay of justice, mercy, and grace, all happening at once. And this is what happened roughly 2,000 years ago at the cross. When God came down out of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ to die on the cross and pay our penalty for sin, it is made possible because of God's love for us. This is all of God. This is the simplicity and wonder of the gospel. God doesn't need any help to achieve our salvation. He's done it all on his own. And frankly, it's an insult to God for us to think that in any way we can help him achieve our salvation. It is all of God. It is a gift. In my weird courtroom example, it would be weirder yet for the defendant to leave the courtroom as a free man but spend the rest of his life going to the jail to sit in the visitor room to try to pay the penalty that's already being paid for him. Helping the judge do the time. Paul wrote to the Ephesians chapter 2 8 and 9 For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works so that no man can boast. Paul further wrote at Romans six twenty-three: For the wages of sin is death but the gift The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't lose sight of the fact that the gospel, the good news, involves a gift. From a legal point of view, I can tell you that a gift is special. It requires three components. A donative intent, a transfer, and a receipt. You need those three things to have a completed gift. We can visualize this process by considering the practice we all share at Christmas time. If I wanted to give you a gift, I would likely go to the store and pay for that gift. I would wrap it up. I would put your name on it and place it under the tree. At this point, I've displayed donative intent and I've delivered the gift, but it's not yours until you unwrap it and claim it to be your own. At that point, it becomes a completed gift, but not a moment before. For many of you, this is like the gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ has purchased for you on the cross. Until you receive that fully paid for gift by faith, it is not yours. You must turn to Christ in faith and believe this good news, that he did in fact die in your place and offers you the result of his work, the gift of eternal life if you would just but receive it. The Apostle John wrote about Christ, John 1.10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Gospel, the Good News, is that though a sinner apart from Christ is hell-bound, God has solved this horrible problem through Christ. When we could not save ourselves, Christ ransomed us, and he offers this free gift of eternal life if we would merely receive it by faith. If we do, God promises us that we will be changed. He will do the work of conversion in us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are born again. We are changed from death to life. We are brought out of darkness into light. We are no longer God's enemies, and that always shocks me to think that I was God's enemies. But we are no longer God's enemies, but we are adopted as his child. Our heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. Moments before we were hell-bound, and now we are heaven-bound. We are given his spirit, and we are connected in a special eternal relationship. Thank God for this conversion. Thank God for the good news, gospel. I believe famous preacher George Whitfield would tell you at this point what he shared from his heart with listeners over 200 years ago. He said, The road to hell is paved with good intentions. If you are damned for lack of conversion, remember that you are not damned for lack of warning. Thousands have not had the gospel preached to them, but you have heard. If there is a deeper place in hell, God will order a gospel-despising church member to be put there you will have dreadful torments. Of him to whom so much is given, much will be required. How dreadful to have minister after minister saying, Lord God, I preach, but they would not listen. Such is the responsibility of hearing the gospel, the good news, the greatest news that has ever been told on the face of this earth. A proper response is required. When Jesus was nearing the earthly end of his ministry, when his so-called hour had come, he wound up having to appear before Pontius Pilate on the way to the cross. At this time, when under pressure from the chief priests and elders, the Jewish crowd and the Jewish crowd they influenced, Pilate capitulated and released the criminal Barabbas. He then stood before a very agitated Jewish crowd, and he had to deal with Christ. In that very tense spot, in front of that very unruly crowd, he pronounced a question that has reverberated through the centuries. He said this, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? What a question. This is not a question just for those Jewish people. It's a question that speaks to us right now. Our lives and our futures depend on what we do with Jesus. He is Emmanuel. God with us. He is like no other man. Think of it. There is no other figure in all of history who is as well known as Jesus Christ. And there is no name in all of history that has been spoken well of, poor of, in all of history than Jesus Christ. He is unique. And importantly of Jesus Christ, there is no neutral ground. There is no neutral position that you can take with him. He made it very clear when he said, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. With Christ, you are either in the light or you're in the dark. You're either dead or you're alive. You are either heaven-bound or hell-bound. It is that simple. So no person should be vacillating with what they're going to do with Jesus Christ. Pilate's words echo now into our 21st century then what shall I do with Jesus who was called the Christ? I trust most of you, if not all of you, have heard of the famous 19th century preacher D.L. Moody. He had his roots in Massachusetts before launching out into an an international evangelistic ministry which allowed him to travel over one million miles and reach more than 100 million people with the gospel. In the late 1860s, D.L. Moody served as the president of the Chicago YMCA and had a central role in building the YMCA's first building. It was called Farwell Hall. This venue suited speaking to large groups, upwards to 3,000 at a time, and D.L. Moody used this building to preach on Sunday nights. On October 8, 1871, Moody preached to a full crowd at Farwell Hall. Coincidentally, on Pilate's words, what then shall I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? He closed his message by saying, I wish you would take this text home with you and turn it over in your minds during the week. And next Sabbath, we will come to Calvary, the cross, and we will decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Following the sermon, Ira Sankey, his song leader, began leading in a hymn, But then it was interrupted by enormous commotion outside. What was the problem? The Great Chicago Fire of 1871 had just started and people were fleeing for their lives. It took until Wednesday for all of the flames to die out in Chicago and Moody lost everything that he had. On the Great Chicago Fire's 22nd anniversary in 1893, Moody spoke reflectively to a gathering and said, I have never seen that congregation since, and I never will meet those people again until I meet them in another world. But I want to tell you one of the lessons I learned that night, which I have never forgotten, and that is, when I preach to press Christ upon the people then and there and try to bring them to a decision on the spot. I have asked God many times to forgive me for telling people that night to take a week to think it over. Though I believe God calls people to himself at his time and that the Holy Spirit ultimately convicts us of our sinfulness and of our need for a savior, Jesus Christ, I do take to heart D.L. Mooney's experience with the Chicago Fire. When one hears the good news of Jesus Christ, that great information needs to be processed. To not accept it is to reject it. I cannot force you, despite my hardest efforts, to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I can't do that and I won't. But I will do what Paul attempted to to do to the believers at Corinth when he wrote, I beseech you, I implore you, to be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. So I implore you, If you have not yet received Jesus Christ as your Savior, then this is the day for that. To help you process and grapple with this gospel information, I want want to take you back to September 1977 when I returned to Fort Lauderdale, Florida to begin my second year of law school. As part of my new weekly schedule, I began attending Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. And I was asked to join a new members class, which I did. In that new members class, the pastor, Dr. D. James Kennedy, asked us all two questions. And I want to share those questions with you. The first question is, have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die right now, you would go to heaven? And the second question that was asked of me at that time was, if you did die right now, when you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven?" What would you tell him? Let me tell you first of all that you absolutely can know for sure that you are going to heaven. This is the good news. John, First John 5, we're told, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The whole Bible is written that we may know and not be left in doubt. By God's grace, I know for certain that when I die, I'm going to heaven, and you can know too. I hope you have full assurance, but I bet there are some of you in here who might not have that full assurance. I did when I was down in Florida. So I want to consider with you that second question. What would you tell God if He asked you? If you stood before Him, why should I let you into my heaven? If you were like me, you might have unconfidently begun to list a lot of religious things. That I've tried to be good, I've tried to go to church, I've prayed, I've given, I've tried to follow the golden rule, I've I've not committed any heinous crimes or murders, I've tried to like my fellow man. But you know what? Those are all useless, futile answers that won't earn any of you heaven or eternal life or a restored relationship with, with God. Those things simply cannot be earned. Paul wrote to the Ephesians at chapter 289 For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works so that no man will boast The good news gospel message distinguishes Christianity from all other religions and faiths and there are two simple words that set Christianity apart from everything else do and done do and done If you believe that you have to do many things to earn God's favor, then you are misguided and you are not a partaker of the good news of the gospel. All religions other than Christianity have their rules and requirements and practices for being in good favor with their God, things to do. But Christianity is so wonderfully different. As for the payment of sins, the purchasing of eternal life, Jesus Christ has done it all for us. Do you hear me? Jesus Christ has done it all. There is nothing, there is absolutely nothing more for us to do. Salvation is the gift of God through Christ. We don't have to pay for a gift. It is paid for already. We just have to receive it. If we had to pay for it, then it's not a gift, it's a purchase. But it's a gift. And that is the good news. That is the gospel. Some of you may be trying to make this more complicated than it really is. It's simple. It is a gift. It is paid for by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only currency that God accepts. There is nothing more that you can add to it. God doesn't need your help in figuring out how to draw you back to himself. His solution is Jesus Christ. You need to quit trusting your useless, valueless currency, and in your feeble, worthless attempts to gain God's favor. There is nothing you can do. It is all done for you through Christ. Do you get it? I implore you to understand this good news. I cannot present it to you any clearer. Thank you for allowing me to be in your presence here today as an evangelist, a bringer of the good news. May God bless you as you do your best to respond in the most eternally beneficial way. Let me close in prayer. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent your Son to die for us. Your enemies, rebellious sinners, but yet, though we were in your wrath, your love overcame it all in Christ at the cross. We can't fathom it, Lord, but we accept it and we thank you for it. I pray, Lord, that there are, if there are any in this uh, church this morning, anyone hearing this message, who has yet to receive the gift of eternal life through faith in Christ, that they might do that today. That their life might be changed, that you would be glorified in that life. Oh, Lord, allow it to happen. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.